Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Versailles Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. A happy late afternoon to you, Dr. Parks. <laughs> Oh, I mean, Aaron, I got it wrong. Yeah, no, we're, we're so familiar here. Uh, the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, you joined us for a great episode, uh, Let's Get Psyched, and we're going to discuss underused medications in psychiatry. And to help us with that discussion, we're honored to have Dr. Chris Aiken joining us. Dr. Aiken is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist whose work focuses on natural and lifestyle approaches to mood disorders. He is the director of the Mood Treatment Center, the bipolar section editor for Psychiatric Times, and an instructor at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He hosts the weekly Carlot Psychiatry Podcast with Kelly Newsom and is its editor-in-chief. He's written two books on mood disorders, including The Depression and Bipolar Workbook, 30 Ways to Lift Your Mood and Strengthen the Brain, released last year. Dr. Aiken, thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I'll get the ball rolling. I'm going to be le the less informed person being that I'm a psychologist, but I, 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 I very fascinated with this topic. So I'm just going to ask you, what do differently you Differently informed as Alan. Different, I'm different. Uh, yeah. Differentially informed. Very, very, very politically correct. Thank you, Tosha. Uh, how, what do you think is the most underused medication in psychiatry and what are your reasons and your explanations for that? Many of them are tied for first place in that category. But I'll say that one that perhaps could make the biggest difference in American society, if we used more of it, would be clozapine for schizophrenia. Close place would one. be lithium we for guess, mood disorders. Yeah. See how uninformed I am? Okay. What, what was the sorry, second, sorry. Let, was the second one lithium? Second one was lithium. You know, well, let's not give them all away right away, guys. Uh, <laughs> or, or using lithium a bit more. It's, it's hard. They're, but they're very different disorders. You know, that was one of the first great discoveries in psychiatry was that bipolar and schizophrenia are different disorders. And we sit here a hundred years later and we're not even using the medications that are most effective for them as, as often as we should. Now, I, I do know a little bit about clozapine. So, uh, so that's, do you feel like the, the number one reason is the risk that's associated with its use or? That's what other, the number okay. One reason, yeah. So clozapine, an antipsychotic, um, is a, a medication just like many other antipsychotics, but that seems to work better. And I believe also uh, decreases some suicide risk, uh, which is rare. And it can come with some very serious gastrointestinal and blood-related side effects. Is that correct, Dr. Aiken? That puts it very well. And it's interesting because clozapine came out of a movement to reduce side effects. Nobody knew that it would be one of the most effective antipsychotics out there. What happened in the 1970s, you know, we had thought we'd practically cured schizophrenia with antipsychotics. So they were letting everybody out of the hospital. And that led to a big homeless population, unfortunately. But they were learning these medications weren't working as great as they hoped. So they kept pushing the dose really high 
And what that caused was an epidemic of tardive dyskinesia, which is these awful, permanent, embarrassing muscle movements that antipsychotics can cause. So there was a race to develop an antipsychotic that didn't cause that. And clozapine was the leading contender to this day. We don't really think it causes that, which is wonderful. But along the way, they figured out it can, in one in a hundred people, make their blood count drop to lethal levels. So that is a serious risk that has held it back. Have we facilitated the use of, of this medication for psychiatrists in that, uh, you know, to, to, to moder moderate this risk or to monitor this risk? Or uh, are, are there other ways that we can tool with the, adjust the system uh, to make it easier for this medication to be prescribed? Yes and no. They've developed a centralized database called the REM system. And that does make it easier for pharmacists and doctors to monitor the blood count, which has to be checked every week and then eventually once a month. But on the other hand, it requires the doctor to take a test and register. So a little more effort on the doctor's part to register and actually start prescribing this. So clozapine is one that's going to take more effort from the doctor to check that blood count regularly and from the patient. And that's what's holding its back, both the fear, which actually, you know, you brought up a good point. We have reduced the rate of this drop in blood count. It's people are not dying from it anymore like they used to. In fact, the side effect that Alan brought up of serious constipation has become more deadly than the blood count drop itself. Wow, that, that's very fa fascinating. Um, now with lithium, you know, I, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you attribute that to? Is that, again, there's risks involved? And You know, each of these underutilized meds tells a different story. And let me finish up on clozapine. The reason to use it is that it changes people's lives. So without that kind of treatment, most people with schizophrenia are not going to be able to hold a job. And since clozapine offers them the hope of a more fuller recovery, they might actually go on to be relatively free of the illness with it, which they're not with other medications. So in the US, about 5% of people take clozapine. And in other countries, it's closer to 30%. So we just have a different system here. When but you say 5% of people take clozapine, are you talking about 5% of schizophrenia patients or 5% yes. of a subset of schizophrenia patients? Good question. Just 5% of people with schizophrenia. We think that about 30% should take it because we know that 30% are not responding to the other meds. So it's time to give them this chance. And we got to do it early because people have an 80% chance of responding to clozapine if we do it in the first three years. But if we wait too long, the illness gets kind of crusty and it doesn't respond as well. Oh, I like that crusty. I have, I have a question. You mentioned, Dr. Aiken, that in other countries, the rate of use is like 30% amongst schizophrenic patients. Yeah. Uh, what countries is that? Why is there such a big difference for the American patients? I, I believe it's Northern Europe and Australia come to mind. Uh, the, these are countries that have socialized medicine. So the doctor has a direct incentive to reduce healthcare costs across the board. Uh, we have more of a consumer-driven culture to our medications. So the doctor has more of an incentive to give patients things with fewer side effects or things that are less stigmatizing or that patients ask for because the advertising says, ask your doctor. So there's different cultures there. It oh. leads to higher costs in America though, and lower costs in other countries. I wonder too, if part of it may be in those countries, they have um, 
a bigger network of support or maybe, you know, a lot of our schizophrenic patients are pretty at risk and um, have a hard time finding resources, time, money to go make that trip weekly, you know, for clozapine for the beginning of treatment mm -hmm. to go get the labs drawn, um, that maybe that could play a role too. Yeah, I think that certainly does. Some of our states like Minnesota have much better support systems for people with mental illness. It varies by state. I know for e my own patients, sorry, Alan, I know for my own patients, this last thing, my own patients, the patients that I've thought about using clozapine on and then decided maybe not the best choice were those patients who I felt like I couldn't totally rely on to go get that weekly blood draw and be safe on the medication. That's yeah. the terrible irony. It's it's the ones who need it most exactly. that we're most worried. And so what I'd share with you is to believe in them, believe that once they get um, recovered, they will be able to follow those blood draws more regularly uh, and stick with them. It's, it's kind of like trusting that a flying machine is going to work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just get in the machine. It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That Tosha, that, that was exactly what I was going to say too. It sounds like we're converging on what for me was feeling like a growing elephant in the room, which is you have these patients who aren't doing well on other medications and, and in general aren't doing well. And we're talking about, you know, um, maybe they're not doing their activities of daily living, like being able to get groceries. Maybe they're, uh, you know, a lot of these patients have severe paranoia and maybe we don't even know if they were taking their medications and we definitely don't know if they were taking them correctly. And now we're going to be potentially putting them on this medication that is um, potentially very dangerous if misused, right? And so I guess the question is, how does one equip oneself to be brave and be the change that one wants to see in terms of uh, giving patients what could actually help them? Well, to start with, let's go over the algorithm of how to use it because the APA has new guidelines and, and that is it's after failure of two antipsychotics. So you're right, you wanna wait, but that's actually not very many failures. And to, to your point, Alan, they have found that 35% of people are not even taking their antipsychotics. So they recommend checking a blood draw on one of those to make sure they actually did before you move to clozapine. So all, all, I think if you get experience with clozapine, you see it change people's lives. You see people who can barely hold a conversation or put one thought in front of another, and they come in and they're talking about playing basketball with their friends and they're yeah. going to college. Yeah, I think you just got to see it with your own eyes to believe it. And um, always believe in your patients. They can do more than we think they can. And particularly if they have a modicum of family support, they can get to those weekly labs to get it done. Is there an impact of just the litigious nature of, of our society? Lawyer up. That they're going to take the, the, the path of least, take the lowest risk possible. I think that's possible. I, I don't think that way myself. I, I always imagine myself suing myself. Like, what would I sue myself for? If my son was going through untreated schizophrenia and was not given clozapine, then I'd sue me. So I, I kind of think in reverse, but I think, yeah, for some people, they're, <laughs> they're thinking about that deadly outcome. What I'll say to that is it's, it's also a uh, lack of appreciation for how destructive these mental illnesses are on the body. Because yeah. here we're afraid of damaging their body with the blood count, say, um, in order to save their minds. 
And I have one answer to that. This is based on about a dozen studies. They found that people who take clozapine live 10 years longer on average than if they take those other meds. So even with all the numerous physical side effects it can cause, what's good for the brain is good for the body is the bottom line there. That's amazing. 10 years longer. I couldn't believe it when I read it. Let's go to lithium. So lithium, I said each of these has a different story. And in the case of lithium, why is it underprescribed? Because it is not and has never been a medication. It's a mineral. You know, a lot of your friends are taking calcium and magnesium. Lithium is just like that. The only reason it's prescribable instead of over the counter is there were cases in the 1940s where people took way too much of it as a salt replacement and they were having heart attacks. But heck, if, if you took way too much of magnesium, you've had a heart attack too. So lithium is in an odd place where no one's ever been able to make money off of it because you can't copyright it. And I've spoken to the old doctors who helped introduce it. And they shared with me that even back in the 1960s, lithium talks were in the way back windowless corner and nobody attended them, but a bunch of scruffy old nerdy people who were interested in the, the hardcore data. All the other talks have always had big grand ballrooms and dinners and mm. expenses paid. So that about sums it up. It's 50 years of neglect by the promotional industry. I'll never forget going to New York City when Abilify Aripiprazole was at its height. And it was the number one most profitable drug of the year in 2015. They made the most off of that. It's an antipsychotic. I'm thinking, do we all need antipsychotics in America that that would be the most profitable drug? But anyway, I'm in New York City and I'm in a payphone booth. And there's a big ad for Abilify in the payphone booth yeah. for an antipsychotic. It's like, this is out of this world. Poor lithium never got a single ad. But that tells you, if you can convince people to take an antipsychotic for not even having psychosis, <laughs> these ads can sell just about anything. Maybe we should all take Abilify. Yeah, you, you almost think you want to. No, I, I would never want to take that one. I mean, I don't look at the ads. I, I read the black box warnings and I'm like, don't give me that. No. Yeah, no about, gambling problem for me. <laughs> what about lithium, and, though? That neuroprotective element of lithium sounds pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and that's Dr. what sets it apart. Yeah. Dr. Aiken, I also I wanted to say I really enjoyed your lithium episode. Uh, that was specifically for patients. I want to recommend that to my patients in the future. Oh, thanks. We'll have to launch it on our patient stream, the pocket psychiatrist, which we have. So you, what you brought up is one of the many unique things about lithium. Lithium causes more brain growth than any medication we have. Now, almost all psych meds, except the abusable ones, cause some brain growth. But like antidepressants cause a little bit of growth in the hippocampus, the memory center. They all just do it in small parts where lithium is causing growth throughout the entire brain from the white matter to the gray matter, the inner depths to the outer cortex. And that's why it's the only medicine we have that prevents dementia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And with ta we're talking with Dr. Al with Dr. Chris Aiken about uh, underused psychiatric medications. We're also talking to Alan. Also. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored to be Alan, confused with I'm Dr. talking Aiken. at you, Alan, not to you, but... Um, <laughs> uh, no, but we... Uh, 
you know, this the, the idea of underused med- medications, it kind of brings a lot of different issues. And you were kind of talking about the influence of uh, the pharmaceutical industry's advertising power. Uh, do, you, do you foresee changes in the near future to how the current system is set up? They, you have this, this stream of new medications. It, it does seem that it attracts a lot of attention and psychiatrists gravitate to it. I've, I've talked with psych, my psychiatric friends, my psychiatrist friends, and then they'll say they had so, such high hopes for you know, medications like you know, Geodon, things like that, and then it just tanked. And so, but, but do you see any changes that are possible to this in the near future? Well, the world is becoming increasingly capitalistic in the way our, our culture is driven. So that's probably not going to change. But now and then a, a congressional law will come down and change everything. Like, well, like about 15 years ago, the Sunshine Act required all, all this exposure of pharmaceutical funding of education. And that really did make big changes. So it, it put an end to a, a lot of that kind of education that doctors were getting at their conferences that passed for unbiased talks. What is changing is that consumers, that is patients, are having a much more powerful say in the drug approval process. And that started with the movement in the 1980s as people with HIV felt that they weren't speeding up the approval process in time. They're being too conservative. So now the FDA is rushing some things through and we're getting some really wild treatments that we never would have gotten before, such as the uh, psychedelic medications and those are actually right. being run by nonprofit companies. Mm-hmm. So there are some shifts that the FDA laws are, are we're going to see. What what do you think about that, by the way, Dr. Aiken, that it's run by, you know, the push is from nonprofit companies. Do you think that we can trust their studies? You know, we've we've looked on bias as financial bias. Mm-hmm. And there are bias in studies for many different reasons. So I think we just have to expand our notion of bias as we're dealing with nonprofit companies. And these are run by people who are often deeply believe in the products that they're testing and potentially bringing to market. So we all have bias in some way and we need to watch the rigor of those studies. Cause Mm -hmm. what I was saying there was the FDA is actually allowing these to be approved on less rigorous studies. When now when these drugs get approved, they're thinking, the final testing is going to happen in the general public as people take them. So we have to be cautious in those first few years of using them. And why are, why is the FDA, you know, approving them on less rigorous studies? Well, it, it started with the movement with HIV to get things out faster. And that just built to many diseases. The idea being that if you have a rare disease that there's no treatment for, or you have a disease, surprisingly, even depression gets this status where the treatments are not good enough and antidepressants only get one in three people better. Mm-hmm. Then the FDA is saying the public wants things approved with less evidence. They want to give it a chance. And There's we see that in our patients. You know, our patients are going to fly to Mexico to get an experimental treatment for cancer. Right. But uh, that's just calm. The, the FDA is meeting them halfway on that regard. So I, I don't know where this is going to head. The first medication was the ones for tardive dyskinesia were the first ones to be released for that use. And I think that's wonderful. We have treatments for tardive dyskinesia. Um, uh, back to um, y'all's point about 
the money issue, one thing this does is it allows medications to be approved on a much smaller budget. And that is exciting because we are seeing medications that I, we've always thought should be approved, like these meds for tardive dyskinesia. We've known about them since the 1970s, but nobody wow. had $20 billion to bring them to market. Now they can bring them to market on a much smaller budget. And that's wonderful. So what about like a, a, a nonprofit? I assume it's a nonprofit or a governmental organization like um, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Um, is there anyone trying to take an already underused heralded medication like lithium and, and, and uh, just kind of create a structure by which this can be, ex this use can be expanded Etc. No, I've never heard of that. That'd be a wonderful movement. What you have a great idea there, and you could actually bring people together from different networks. NAMI would be a great one. Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, and lots of scientists who are lithium advocates who see it as underutilized. I remember the late Fred Goodwin, who just passed away. He was director of the NIMH, and he told me that um, the only talk he, he would give for a pharmaceutical paid talk was on lithium. And one year they let him do it. Uh, a pharmaceutical executives, I think that they had a family connection to a family member responding to lithium and they actually paid for this big talk for him to give on that. But wow. uh, yeah, there are a lot of people who want to speak up for it because they've seen the difference in their patients. About one in three people with bipolar disorder could be close to a cure with lithium, meaning they could stay stable for years and not have to keep changing their medications. Right, right. From a child standpoint, um, lithium is the er uh, FDA-approved treatment that can be used earliest for bipolar in children, you know, seven years old up. Um, but in child, we don't really use lithium very often because of the, um, you know, fetal effects of lithium. Um, Oh, okay. That's really interesting. The, they're now thinking the Epstein's abnormality in the heart, which can happen if a mother takes lithium and the fetus is exposed, is much lower than previously thought. That's right. And Depakote actually has a worse risk. With oh, boy. The, it's the, yeah, the worst of them. The now, my feeling on that is we have exciting data where you take young brain cells, literally human brain cells from the cell line that have bipolar and give them lithium in a Petri dish. And it actually reverses the neuro excitation that's going on there. Wow. So it, and we see that clinically that if a, a young child, a teenager, let's say gets lithium, it often lasts, they have a much better recovery for the rest of their life. So if we wow. intervene early with it, it might address the underlying biology. And wow. how does it do that? Well, I mentioned that nerve cell study. There's also, we know that lithium restores the circadian rhythm system the expression of those genes and lithium, like you brought up, has a lot of brain growth. So there's at least three ways where it might treat the underlying pathology of the disorder. So, so we do want to let you get to the, the third med. The third, but, third, yes. But I don't know that we can pass over lithium without asking you if you want to talk a little bit about the soft drink history or the rates of lithium in groundwater and what that does to folks or yeah, are there any things, are there any fun facts about lithium? There, there's just, to me, there seem like so many fun facts about lithium. Are there any that you particularly want to talk about? Yeah, well, if you don't mind, I have a few um, hardcore science facts, just three of them. <laughs> it's not just for bipolar. 
but of course for treatment-resistant depression. And in a, a new study, it was the only medicine that kept people with depression out of the hospital. We're talking not bipolar depression. So that's amazing. The better than antidepressants that way. Yeah. And it has the best effects in keeping people well after ECT, which is very hard to do. And it's the only mood medicine that has strong anti-suicide effects. Right. So we need to think about it beyond bipolar. To, to your point is a great thing to bring up with patients because patients are afraid of lithium since it's never had advertising to normalize it. And that's the main thing advertising does is normalize things like everybody right. takes it. That's right. um, but I'll tell them that probably their great grandparents took lithium because 7-Up is called 7-Up because the molecular weight of lithium is seven. And it was originally designed, if you read the label from the 1930s, it says 7-Up, a lithiated beverage for hospital and home use, takes the ouch out of the grouch. So, and and wow. the lithium water, people were flocking to lithium springs to drink lithium water. I, I ordered some of it and drank it. It just tastes like salt water. Okay, the last, uh, the third uh, under, underutilized medication. The, the final the one is the MAOIs. And here, a very different origin story. Okay. I can't say that I know the reason they're underutilized, although the fact that some people could have serious side effects if they eat cheese, that's got to be there. But another is gender, that there's some data, not totally convincing, but there's some signal that people with atypical depression, that's eating a lot, sleeping a lot, and heavy feelings in the limbs, respond better to MAOIs. And women are much more likely to have atypical depression. So there's some thought out there that if they allowed women in the early depression studies, we might have concluded that the MOIs are much better than we thought. But women were kept out of depression research out of a paternalistic kind of idea to, it was actually women of childbearing age, to protect the developing fetus in case they might get pregnant. So it wasn't until 1990 that the NIH reversed that and brought women back into the research fold. That's at least a less misogynistic reason for keeping women out of the research than I was expecting to, to hear. Oh, no. Were... They had the other reasons, too, like their hormones are out of whack and all those, too. But that was, right, I was right. just trying to trying to um, save face for them there. You know? <laughs> we don't save face. So, so, OK, so MAOIs, this inhibitor of monoamine oxidase, um, which is a, a it's a it's a machine it's a, it's an enzyme which is a tiny little machine to break uh some of the neurotransmitters that make us um potentially happy and focused and driven uh are you talking particularly about a specific are you maybe are you are you thinking about selegiline here which is one of a more selective one that makes it so that our patients can maybe eat some cheese Get, give us the uh Give us a breakdown of, of why this makes the list. Well, it makes the list because depression is hard to treat. We're not getting enough recoveries. And we know that a lot of people are going to respond to the MAYs if they're just given a chance. So we ought to use them earlier. And we ought to not be afraid to use them. With people with severe depression, I think that's the most important thing in your practice. Yeah, make the right diagnosis, sure. But also figure out if this is really severe and impairing their functioning or if it's mild, if they have a mild depression, don't go to the MAOI. But if this is ruining their life, their marriage, their job, 
um, suicide, et cetera, then try an MAOI because it can work in treatment resistant cases. And selegiline is a great one. It's a patch. It's probably a little better tolerated and less drug interactions. The reason not to go there is that probably by this time you're dealing with a treatment resistant case and it doesn't have any research in that. And you're, these MAOIs have a dose dependent response. So you're usually going to have to raise the dose on that selegiline MSAM patch. By the time you raise the dose, you already got the food and drug interactions. So I'll usually start with tranalcipramine, which is parnate. It's just the least sedating of the bunch and has the least weight gain of the bunch. And What's, what I want to leave you with is don't be afraid of these. The MAOIs are surprisingly well tolerated. I mean, the main side effect is hypotension, that you don't get as much sexual dysfunction and fatigue and GI problems. They're really well tolerated. It's just getting people to avoid certain foods. And we now have better science behind that diet. So people can go to psychotropical.info. It's a website that a psychiatrist put together and has some of the best information on MAOI diet. You definitely want to use up-to-date information, not stuff from the 1990s, but stuff from the past 10 years on the diet. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about underused medications in psychiatry, and we'd like to thank Dr. Chris Aiken for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. Thank you all. Also, thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com, and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review. It's very important to us. We very much appreciate it, and we read all your questions. Also going to say that. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.